0: Okay? Yes. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, so we come to year four. And the theme for this year, year four, is the word, of course, we, we say what well, we're talking about, scripture, in the Hellenistic world, Hellenistic world. And so I'm going to start by talking about this word, Hellenistic or Hellenism. Uh, and that word is associated with Alexander the Great. And this is a a piece of a mosaic uh, depicting Alexander the Great in one of his battles. And this mosaic dates from around year 100 before Christ, B.C. Uh, And it actually shows him in his battle against the Persian king Darius III. Remember, the Persians are the ones that let the Israelites go back home after the Babylonian captivity. But then after that, of course, the Persians still were the dominant country over the Israelites. But eventually the mm-hmm. Persians were defeated by Alexander the Great, and then we have the, the Hellenistic uh, Empire. The uh, Greek Empire took over after that. And this mosaic is taken from a larger mosaic, and there you can see right, there's actually a larger mosaic of this battle. Um, And this is the battle where uh, Alexander the Great defeated Persia in year 333. So the the Persian Empire fell in 333, and then we had the Greek or Hellenistic Empire initiated by Alexander the Great uh, took over. And Alexander the Great then went on to conquer most of the then-known world. And all this pink shows the extent of his empire. So you can go all the way here to, this is uh, Greece. Down here you had Egypt, right? And all the way over here up to the edge of India. So he had a very large empire, probably the largest continuous empire of any of them uh, before that. And this is, they know what he looked like, right? Because there were some busts of Alexander the Great. Uh, He did this all as a very young man. In fact, he died when he was 32 years old. A very young man. And he conquered most of the then-known world at that young age. Where where did he end up, Joe? Excuse me, but right over here. This is where I think this was it. I think he was expanding this way. To to India. Into India, yeah. Yeah, okay. And I think this is where he died then. And then things continued on, but... And anyway, they started to split as, as you would expect. These generals then got parts of the. die in a war, or did he just die? Something? He died of uh, it wasn't it wasn't in battle. Uh, I forget what it was. Some illness. Yeah. Okay, so the so the word the word Hellenism or Hellenistic comes from the fact that the Greek people referred to themselves referred to themselves as Hellenes. Right, so to be Hellenistic is really the equivalent of being Greek. And, and the reason this is significant is that uh, when Alexander the Great, I mean, he wanted to conquer the world, but and he just didn't want to conquer the world. He also wanted to spread Greek culture. So wherever he went, he brought the Greek culture with him, the Greek language, the Greek political systems. So it was a spread not only of his kingdom, but of the Greek culture. Right. And, that's, and that's the definition of the word Hellenism. And uh, this was this phenomena of spreading the Greek culture, and when we talk about culture, we're talking about religion, art, literature, language, throughout his empire... This is a term that uh, academics started using probably a couple hundred or a uh, couple hundred years ago to refer to this phenomena of what happened with Alexander the Great. So he died in 323, uh, and uh, the Greek uh, Empire uh, continued in existence uh, under his generals. Until they were eventually conquered by Rome in the year 30 BC, right? and that's ushered in the Roman era. And of course, that was the uh, that was in place at the time of Jesus. Right, so you had the Greek Empire lasted you know, almost 300 years. Okay? So Hellenism is, is really the cultural background. Everything we're going to study this year, because all of the New Testament was written in Greek. So we had that influence that carried forward. Um, and most of the Hebrew Bible books that were written later, like during this period, were also written in Greek. Not all of them, but a lot of them were written in Greek. So the Hellenistic culture really permeated the world, and it also affected very significantly the Israelite nation. So we're going to take a look again at the word in the Hellenistic culture. Uh, So what we'll be studying this year. So we're going to start semester one with the wisdom of Israel, um, and we're going to study Israel's wisdom literature. Uh, This literature has its origins actually before the beginning of the Greek Empire, before Hellenism, but extends well into the time of Hellenism. Uh, next semester, we're going to study Judaism in a Hellenistic world, uh, and we're going to look at. So we're going to look at wisdom books here, this semester, and in this uh, semester, we're going to look at books um, that that start to show. Well, how is it that the Israelites responded to the Hellenistic culture? How did they survive within the Hellenistic culture? And how did they maintain their identity? With this pervasive Hellenistic culture. And then in semester three, we'll go back and pick up the New Testament books that we didn't study in year two. So we're going to look at Matthew and some of the other pastoral letters. And overall, during our study for these three years so far, we've been kind of looking at the books in chronological order, especially the Old Testament. So, again, think back to year one. Uh, We studied from the beginning. And we studied all the books up to uh, when Judah fell, the fall of the uh, Israelite empire, when Judah fell to the Babylonians. All right, so that was year one. We studied the history. Year two, of course, we jumped into the New Testament. But then year three, last year, we, we studied the prophets, which overlapped some of the writings in here and brought us forward to the destruction of the temple and rebuilding of the temple. And this semester, we're going to look at, starting with the wisdom literature, some of this starts back here, and then all the writings that take us up into the time of Jesus. And of course, with the New Testament, we'll look at the writings during the time of Jesus. So again, the Old Testament, we've been kind of progressing through the time period of the writing of the Old Testament books. Right, these are the key uh, uh, the key events. Right? We had Exodus, leaving Egypt. After 40 years in the desert, they entered the Promised Land. They finally asked for it and got a king. The first major main king was David, who united the Israelite nation. It used to be tribes, so and we had Saul who tried to unite them. David finally united them. When David died, his son took over. His son wasn't such a great leader. When he died, the kingdom divided, north and south. Eventually, the north Israel fell to the Assyrians, and then the south fell to the Babylonians. Um, they were allowed to return when Babylonia was defeated by the Persians. They were allowed to return like 50 years later. The temple was finally rebuilt. And then so we're now into the post-rebuilt, post post-second temple period. Okay, I've given you this before. Uh, this is, these are all the books of the Old Testament. Just to try to put some of what we're studying into context. So the Jewish, the Jewish Bible, which is our Old Testament, divides all the books in three categories. So they have the law, which is also called the Torah, or the Pentateuch. Pentateuch uh, means five. Right? So the first five books of the Bible, the law, of the Torah. And then they have second category, the prophets, which we studied primarily last semester. And then the last third category, again, these would be, if you look at Jewish Bibles, then they have writings or wisdom writings. Christian, the Christians, of course, we took over the Old Testament, uh, but all Christian Bibles added a fourth category, which they call the historical books. So if you look in any you know, Christian Bible, you'll see all the books categorized either as the the Pentateuch, the Prophets, the Writings, or historical books. So basically what the Christian authors did is they pulled out some of these books and put them in what they call a historical category. So, again, year one we studied the earliest books, the first books from the beginning of time up through the fall of the Israelite nation. And then last year we studied primarily the Prophets, but we also studied some of the Writings like the Psalms, and we studied one or two Chronicles and some other books. And year four, basically, we're going to pick up everything else. Questions? Uh, one, of the, one, of the, uh, things, one of the one of the unique things. one of the unique things that we have in the Catholic Old Testament is that Catholic Old Testament has some additional books that you don't see in the Protestant Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've identified these here, and I'll talk about them again a little bit. There are seven books that, that we as Catholics have in our Bible that are not in the Protestant Bible. Uh, and I put them here in italics, so Tobit, Judith, 1 and 2 Maccabees, uh, Baruch, uh, the wisdom of Solomon. Uh, yes no, it's, it's in parts of Esther and parts of the book of Daniel. Does that make seven? Mm-hmm. One, two, three, four, five Oh, so Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes still have 7. So and then parts of Esther and parts of Daniel we have in the Catholic Bible that are not in the Protestant Bible. So the, the books, the Old Testament books that are in... Uh, okay, uh, the Catholics have seven additional books that the Protestants don't have. Also, the Hebrew Bible doesn't have either. So the, the Protestant Bible and the Hebrew Bible right now match. Catholics have seven additional books. So the books that everybody has are called proto canonical. Proto meaning you find first, first canon. And these seven additional books are called deuterocanonical. You know, deuterocanonical, find two. So like a second canon. And the books, those seven books are again, Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, also called the Wisdom of Solomon. Sirach, also called Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, 1-2 Maccabees, and parts of Esther and Daniel. What did you say uh, proto canonical? Proto canonical, proto is like first, the first canon, the primary canon, and then deuterocanonical, second canon. This is kind of like we did with with Zechariah. We had, I guess, proto Zechariah, then we had (laughs) Mm deuterosechariah. Pro, like prototype first. First, yeah. First. Yes. Joe, is there a reason why the Protestants and or the Jews did not accept these books, or is there a reason why the Catholics included them despite the non-inclusion yeah. yeah. of the others? Yeah. Um, and I, I'm going I'm to give you the green explanation of that. Long and convoluted. So I'm going to give you the brief explanation. Uh, this goes back to the Septuagint. We may have talked about the Septuagint in previous mm-hmm. semesters. Right. Um, a little history. There is there is a good reason why there's a difference. Uh, the Catholic Bible is based on the Jewish Septuagint. The Septuagint is also sometimes you'll see referred to under the abbreviation LXX, which is the Roman numeral for 70. So the Septuagint will also see it again abbreviated as LXX, again, which is 70. Um, and this is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And the, Okay. The reason it's called uh, Septuagint, or 70, is traditionally they took the Hebrew Bible, which was written in Hebrew or Aramaic, they gave it to 70 Jewish scholars, put them in separate rooms, and told them each to translate it. They each translated, and when they were done, they compared them, and they were all identical. They figured the Holy Spirit. I'm sure that they the, Now you know that's tradition. I don't know about that, but that's where this—that's where the origin of the seventy comes in. Um, this translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek was made in Alexandria and Egypt, and they made that translation because there was a large Jewish population living in Alexandria. Alexandria is in Egypt. It's along the Mediterranean, north, north side of the Mediterranean. So when, when the uh, when the Israelites were defeated and taken out of their country, and we know they went to Babylon, but they went they were taken to many other places. And there was a lot of colonies, Israelite col- or Jewish colonies, really throughout the world. And when the exile was over, they didn't all come back. And some of them established roots and stayed there, and. They were being outside of their homeland. They came under the influence of the Hellenistic culture, which was Greek. Everybody else was speaking Greek. So over the decades, they started to become Greek-speaking, which is what would happen, right? After your children, your children, uh, you're speaking Greek. So now their large population in Alexandria, mostly Greek-speaking, have Hebrew Bible, can't read it, so they needed a Greek translation. So the Jewish people had a translation commissioned of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Trying to do it, uh, and that was done for the local. Uh, they call it the diaspora. You've heard the term, people living outside of the homeland. So the Jews living in the diaspora, uh, just to jump out a little bit. So at the at the time of Jesus' life, they've gone back and they've been able to determine where colonies of Jews lived at the time of Jesus throughout the, throughout the world. So, that, of course, the major colony was Jerusalem, and that would have been Hebrew-speaking Jewish people. Another large population, again, in Alexandria, Antioch. But you can see the little pockets. Even in Rome, there was a large Jewish population. And all of these outside of Jerusalem would would primarily be Greek-speaking. So you can see the Jewish people had gone out, and many of them stayed there, established roots, and didn't come back. So these these are the, uh, again, the Jewish populations that were existing at the time of Jesus. And a lot of these we know from the book of Acts. Because you remember when Paul went out? Yes. He would he would travel around, and the first place he'd go would be the synagogue. Mm-hmm. So you know there were Jews living, at, living throughout the uh, you know, the world at the time, uh, outside of uh, outside of Jerusalem. Okay. So, uh, this translation was done somewhere between 3 and 1 BC, so 1 to 300 years before Christ, translated Hebrew Bible into Greek. So, um, so originally this so when they translated when they translated the bible into greek uh, there were some they, they didn't have a like a, an official canon back then it was still kind of open as to which books were in and which books were out so what happened was in the septuagint there were some additional books that weren't in the hebrew bible and that's the origin of the seven additional books. Seven additional books. So there were seven additional books in the Septuagint that weren't in the Hebrew Bible. Probably because there wasn't an established canon, there was some flexibility. And when, and when the, the, uh, with the advent of Christianity, most of the converts were, I remember when Paul went out, it was mostly the Greek speaking population. So most of the converts were either Gentiles are Greek-speaking Jews. Now did have some in Jerusalem. And they would have been using the Septuagint, or the Greek Bible, which had additional books that the Hebrew Bible didn't. Yeah. Eventually, and originally, the, the Christians were considered a Jewish sect. Yeah, they weren't considered. They, they, they considered themselves Jews, a Jewish sect. Their Messiah had come. Well, eventually, the Jews and the Christians split, and that probably happened after the destruction of the temple. And when they split, the Christians who were using the Septuagint or the Greek Bible continued to use that. And the Hebrew people, the Jews, kind of to establish their own identity, said, we're only going to use the books that were written in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And so you had a split between the Jewish population, which were using only the Hebrew Bibles. And the Christian population, which used the Septuagint, that had the additional seven seven books, so that started the split there. So the Christians used the Septuagint because primarily they were Greek-speaking. So at that time, we're talking first century, the Christian canon had thirty-six books. That's a not equal sign. It did not equal the Hebrew canon, which had twenty-nine books. And that continued that way up to the Reformation with Martin Luther in. Fifteen, seventeen. When that happens, Martin Luther said, "We're going back to the Hebrew canon," and that's when the Christians split with the Protestant Reformation. He said, "We're not gonna. We're gonna go back to Hebrew canon and use that as our Bible." Does that makes sense, or is that mm-hmm. too much? Yeah, okay. So that that's it on that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Um, So let's look at the wisdom books we'll be studying this semester. Uh, traditionally, the wisdom books are, um, ignoring Habakkuk for now, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Sirach, <coughs> Wisdom, and Song of Songs. These are the traditional wisdom books. Now, the Song of Songs we studied last semester. So we're going to be studying the rest of these books this semester. Uh, Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets left over from last year that we didn't get to. And he kind of, kind of has uh, uh, a wisdom feel to it, but we're kind of picking up the loose ends. So primarily this semester we're going to be studying the wisdom books. Now, if <laughs> you think pay attention. which one of these are part of the fanatical? Does anybody remember which ones are not? There's two of them that are. That are Deuterocanonical that are not in the Protestant Bible that are only in the Catholic Bible. Sirach That's one. Also, it's also referred to as just to complicate things, Ben Sirach, and Ecclesiasticus. And the Wisdom of Solomon and the Wisdom of Solomon. Okay, so those are the two uh, Deuterocanonical books that we'll be studying this semester. We'll study all the rest of them this semester too. Semester two will be primarily the deuterocanonical canonical books. All right, so this is what we'll be studying this semester. Okay, now looking at looking at these this wisdom literature, I think uh, simplistically wisdom literature is interested in two main topics. First main topic is practical advice for living a good life. So as an example in Proverbs 22.1 uh, you have a good name is more desirable than great riches and high esteem than gold and silver. You might say well that's just good advice. Uh, so, practical advice for how to live a good life. The other main topic that wisdom literature addresses is a much bigger topic of the meaning of life. You know, what's, you know, what's it all about? And Mostly, that focuses on the dilemma of when, when you look at life and, you, and um, you see that things don't seem to be fair. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the wicked seem to do well, and the good seem to suffer. That whole question, uh, and that that has a name to study that, and that's called theodicy. Theodicy is the study trying to figure out why it is that God allows this to happen. And of course, Job is the prime example of delving into this question, trying to figure it out. Uh, And and this would be an example of uh, Hebrew poetic parallelism, synonymous, right? Example a good name is more desirable than very rich, it's high esteem more than gold and silver. So it would be an example of Hebrew parallelism synonymous parallelism. So you're going to see a lot of this in, in Proverbs. All right, another uh, another feature that sets wisdom literature apart from the other books of the Old Testament that we've been studying is that, that it has a universal interest. Uh, so this interest in wisdom wasn't unique to the Israelite people. There's examples of wisdom literature in the surrounding cultures. So uh, Sumeria, that's not Sumeria, but Sumeria, Babylon, Egypt, and Israel, they all had their variety of wisdom literature. So all the cultures were interested in this topic. So wisdom literature had a universal appeal. They were all trying to you know, find, out, find and discover wisdom. Uh, and you see some interaction between these cultures uh, they've looked at some of the Israelite wisdom literature, and they found parallels in the Egyptian wisdom literature. So they've been, you know, there's some cross connection uh, between the cultures. Yeah, so this, I mean, this, and this shouldn't be surprising because this interest on, well, how do you live a good life, is the universal question, but not necessarily related to the. To the uh, Egyptian or the, I mean, the uh, Israelite God, Yahweh. Um, uh, so, Israelite wisdom literature is similar to the wisdom literature of surrounding cultures, uh, and because of that, you don't see. Some topics that were very important in the previous books that we studied. So you don't see references to the Exodus, you don't see references to Mount Sinai, um, you don't see references to the Babylonian captivity. All the things that were very important to their culture and to their relationship with God. All of those seem, things seem to, to fade away. It doesn't mean. It does not mean that. Um, right. It doesn't mean that wisdom literature is what we say secular it wasn't ignoring God because all wisdom is understood as come from God and all the cultures would see it that way in fact one of the, one of the phrases that just read over and over again is that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom so God is the seen as the source of wisdom but the difference is that although wisdom comes from God wisdom primarily is not revealed if you think of God revealing himself through the prophets God revealing himself in Mount Sinai God is not wisdom is not so much revealed as it is discovered so you think of uh, God revealing himself in the historical events of the Babylonian exile Mount Sinai the exodus through the prophets God revealing himself so like the, the wisdom is coming down uh, God's revelation is coming down Wisdom literature has a different orientation. It's the idea that humanity, through observing nature and how God works in nature, can discover wisdom and discover God. So you have discovery, discovery going up versus previously revelation coming down. A lot the orientation is much different than what we're studying. So wisdom is is discovered by reflecting on life and creation, and then the idea is once you discover wisdom, then you then you uh, orientate your life to wisdom, and if you do that, you will benefit by having an ordered life. Uh, you'll have an ordered society. So a good king is a wise king. Um, And one of the images, one of the images that is used to describe God in the Wisdom Literature as the ultimate craftsman who created the entire universe and all life within it. God is the ultimate craftsman, which is why you can discover God by looking at creation. God is the ultimate craftsman who built the entire universe. So we can discover God. Which, is, which explains why the early Christians associated Jesus as God with wisdom. I could read this in the beginning of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came to be through him, and without him, nothing came to be. So all creation came to be through Jesus. So Jesus is the source of everything, including wisdom. And in fact... We understand Jesus is wisdom, personified wisdom in the flesh, and to take it another step. Ultimately, Jesus reveals true wisdom on the cross. And Jesus crucified is the true wisdom and power of God, according to Paul in the letter to the Corinthians 1, chapter 18 to 25. This is the sketch. i showed you this before. This is the sketch that St. John of the Cross made of made of. Uh, yeah. of Jesus on the cross that he would have had take on. Mm-hmm. So... His real sketch? Well, yeah, that's a copy of it. I mean, that's a, Yeah, that's what his real sketch looks like, yeah. But I think that's the only artistic work that they have of John on the cross. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now, logically, if Jesus' is wisdom, you can say, right, Mary is the seed of wisdom. Which is one of Mary's titles. So it makes sense, right? It makes sense,
1: right? See,
0: he doesn't wear a diaper. <laughs> when he's on the cross, he doesn't have a piece of cloth. I know. Yeah, yeah. That's that was added. You always, you never see Christ on the cross. That's what they think. They because a crucif- they claim the crucifixion person was it's a. It's intended to be humiliating. Although I've also read that the Romans, uh, in deference to the Jewish culture, did allow covering. Uh, but I don't know if that's true. Traditionally, a the person was crucified uh, without anything, any clothes on. Yeah, that, that was the intent of it. Which is... We talked about it earlier. Okay? Any questions? Okay. Um, so th- your homework questions are really all background. We'll start mm-hmm. we'll start reading some of the books next week, We're reading proverbs. That won't be until the following week. So these are all just kind of getting ready. Um, what let me just let me just mention uh, your last homework question. Uh, the last homework question that you have uh Actually, the writer of Colossians one15 to 15-20 have the Old Testament wisdom literature in mind when he wrote that. This will require some thinking. Yeah. Um, but let me just point out some things that might help with that. Uh, I mentioned that wisdom is universal. So you can see wisdom is, say, cosmic. It includes all the creation, so you kind of see those words in there. The idea of wisdom being universal or cosmic. And in Colossians, Jesus is presented as the Cosmic Jesus. Um, also, I mentioned that the, the wisdom is more... One of the ways to find wisdom is to meditate on creation. So you can... The wisdom is revealed through creation... And, of course, we know Jesus is the ultimate creation. Jesus became a created human. So you can discover wisdom through creation. And Jesus, of course, is the epitome of creation. So you'll kind of see those words in here. And that in Colossians, they say something like Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, identifying Jesus as one of us. Um, and also the the idea that wisdom, and, and you'll read this when you read Proverbs, but wisdom... Mm-hmm. Will make us friends of God if you if you meditate on wisdom, conform your life life to wisdom. That will make you friends of God. So you're going to see some of those words in Colossians too. How we become friends with God through Jesus. Okay, so some of those thoughts might help you. All right. Any questions? Yeah, I have a question. Yes. Right. So this should really say. How do you think Colossians, blah, 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 might have been influenced by the Old Testament? Yeah, yeah, by the Old Testament wisdom literature. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. okay, well, let's end with an our Father, then. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. the Son, and Holy Spirit. Welcome back everybody. Thank you. Okay?